if I was to ask you who had introduced the Christmas tree to Great Britain, I reckon there's a fair chance you'd have a particular person in mind and you'd be uh, certain, as I was, that that is the correct individual. One of my guests today contests that idea, reckons it's completely wrong and uh, she sounds pretty persuasive as well. If you were thinking the consort of the monarch, she'll tell you you're, you're right to think that but you've got the wrong consort and the wrong monarch and indeed the wrong century. We're heading back to the 1700s now. We're going to be exploring Georgian London at Christmas time. Before we do that, very quickly, it's worth saying that London at Christmas time isn't much fun if you're on the street and an organisation that we've been checking in with periodically and delighting in watching them grow is the choir with no name which goes about its business bringing people affected by homelessness into a central place and now to multiple central places around the country and make sure that they get uh, at least one decent meal a week make sure that there's a support network around them and also produces great sound and the choir with no name is going to be performing at the festival hall very soon Uh, they've also got a calendar of gigs coming up for the year ahead check out their website it's been a great privilege to be able to watch that success story develop and grow and become what it is now a very important resource and something that's only going to get better and better Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Listener, it is feeling very Yule-y. I've been taking a long run-up at that word, and I knew it wasn't going to sound right. (laughs) And it doesn't. There is hardly in evidence. There are little Christmas trees on the tables made out of barrels in the courtyard in which we find ourselves here in the city. We are tucked away in a courtyard outside Simpsons, and tucked away with me, we have Tina Baxter and Miss Kitty Pridden, who I've been instructed on pain of death to call Miss the whole way through. Uh, Connected with the uh, Georgian Dining Academy, there's a certain streak of uh, formality and strictness going on here, I think. Well, we have to keep up appearances as the Georgian Dining Academy as being the hostesses of a very fine dining experience which takes place at Simpsons Tavern at 38 and a half Cornhill in the City of London, not to be mistaken with the Strand. And, um, of course, there has been a rather fabulous chop house here ever since 1757 when it was opened by Thomas Simpson. And this is where we um, invite people to come and enjoy a Georgian experience at least four times a year. And uh, it uh, is our first full year and it has proved to be very, very successful. And we have an awful lot of fun not only arranging it, but actually hosting it as well. Yeah, we wanted to create something that uh, sort of reinvented the 18th century for the sort of modern world. So while we don't pretend to be reenactors or anything like that, we've got a great passion for the century and it was about recreating it and sparking that enjoyment in other people as well and something that the Georgian Dining Academy is really all about is its atmosphere Um, so it's a sort of wonderful jovial 
Georgian frolic of an evening, basically. Lots of merriment, lots of booze, lots of good food, and we discuss history, and we just get everyone really excited about it. And I think for us, that's really the key, is keeping that environment going on. When I heard about this concept, I was thinking, well, what is it exactly that makes it a Georgian dining experience, which led naturally enough to the concept of a Georgian Christmas, and I think we're going to be weaving that into our... Uh, episode today. We're going to be going on a, a tour of the close area. Where are we off to? Well, we're off uh, around some of the courtyards around here. We've got uh, some lovely um, 18th century style alleyways, so really creating that lovely atmosphere as well. Some lovely links to obviously the 18th century, but also to the modern um, London that we enjoy today. We're also going to be travelling through to um, towards Bank Junction. We've obviously got some amazing city powerhouses there that we're going to talk about as well. So really in this small area, but there's a lot to talk about. So, yeah. Uh, this might preempt some of what we'll be talking about uh, already, but to what degree has this area changed since the period we're going to be discussing? Well, the tavern has in fact been, uh, the footprint of the tavern has been on this site, or the building has been on this site since 1757. Obviously, it was two houses combined into one, and it now the interiors are not Georgian, but Victorian, but the actual frontage with its little bow window, um, the signage is most probably more 1930s, but the actual atmosphere in Ball Court, the size and shape of Ball Court, is as it would have been for many, many centuries ago. Do you know, that's, that's about the umpteenth time I've heard description of Georgian buildings being knocked through two buildings into one in around that time. Was it, what was going on that everybody was knocking their buildings through in the Georgian period? What we've got here is obviously the Great Fire of London, 1666, everyone heard about it. Um, after that period, there was obviously a lot of rebuilding, but it was rebuilding on the same medieval street plans, which were tiny, they were crooked, they were on top of each other. It was, uh, it was actually very unhygienic as well. Um, so after the Great Fire, on the end of the 17th century, the beginning of the 18th century, there was a lot of clearing of those smaller buildings. Um, lots of fires would happen generally all the time throughout the, uh, the City of London. They would pot up, pop up because of these little sort of close-knit buildings Uh, and it created these huge sort of problems obviously it was a massive health and safety thing Um, so as those buildings were destroyed through fire as they went to rebuild they started to merge some of the smaller buildings together Um, lots of the smaller buildings were in fact owned by potentially sort of city guilds that kind of thing so they were potentially just made bigger they were just expanded out um, taking up more room and obviously just making them safer Uh, and obviously a lot of the population during the 18th century was changing massively you've got that shift out to the west obviously throughout Covent Garden the expansion into Kensington and beyond Islington which was a huge Georgia expansion and I think that was the point where the city started to lose a lot of its um, population, the people actually lived here you've got a massive decline in the number of people on the parish records as well, attending the churches, so you've got churches being closed, not rebuilt after fires after the Great Fire as well, and I think it was just during that period, it was a sort of a real resurgence of the, of the City of London of what we see actually today, of that modern world, is a lot of sort of larger spaces and less of those smaller um, inhabitants now, now isn't that interesting when you stack that up against what's been going on in the last uh, 50 years or so with the Victorian townhouses being split up into lots of little apartments. Exactly. It's something that's always happened historically. Um, certainly 17th, 18th century, um, a lot of the, certainly the, the residences around the city would be um, owned by obviously one person, but then lots of families would live inside them, potentially only having one room or one floor for each family. So historically we've always had that. Um, obviously during the, the Georgian and the Victorian period, there's again that expansion out into the, the terraces and the, the suburbs. Uh, but now we're sort of getting back to that 
um, expansion of population again, where people are living in divided up houses, living potentially in just a room um, or a studio flat, that kind of thing. So it's actually just uh, the great turn of history, as it often does. And the, with regard to this actual property, the, the Simpsons Tavern, it was most probably two small houses. And um, what um, Thomas Simpson wanted to do was open, open an eatery. He wanted to open a chop house to feed those very hungry merchants and traders in the city. Oh, well, it's not a term we're necessarily familiar with either. What is a chop house? A chop house is somewhere where you eat a lot of chops. <laughs> but what he would have done was, in fact, interestingly enough, the kitchen and basically what you might like to call the canteen or the dining area was actually underground in, in, the, in the basement where the kitchen is actually today. You would have queued up and you would have gone down the stairs and you would have uh, queued up with your pewter plate and there would have been many, many uh, burly chaps cooking huge haunches of, of beef and lamb and pork and they would have just been slicing off great big chunks of meat and slapping them on your plate with ale. then you'd have a cup of ale and um, uh, maybe a jug of red wine but there wouldn't have been many vegetables it was lots of meat and, and the chef and the manager, the owner today are getting a little book together and they say that there were often quite a few fires because of the fat dripping and everything and eventually he lived upstairs or he rented it out but eventually over time the restaurant began to move up but a chop house is really just really hearty fare meat I think it's important to say as well, we were talking about the uh, lots of people living in one, one house. They wouldn't all have access to a kitchen at every hour of the day. So eating hot food, something maybe you didn't always do at home. So you'd often go out to a chop house or to a tavern where you would go and eat and enjoy company for sort of several hours or a whole day you may sit there. So it was a part of day-to-day life because you just didn't have a kitchen like we have today. Well, I wasn't that hungry before, but uh, now if I see... Well, it's a good job there's not livestock wandering around as there used to be, otherwise I'd be sinking my teeth into the first passing example. Sounds, from what you've been saying as well, like the Great Fire was actually an inevitability. It was, and, I mean, the Great Fire, obviously, is known as the Great Fire because it was, it was the largest and most devastating of the city fires, but it's by no means the only one. Um, we've got lots and lots of accounts of various fires popping up throughout the city throughout many of the centuries, and, in fact, it's well known that, um, certainly during the 18th century, when fires actually um, happened in the city, there were other areas merely just a couple of streets away that didn't realise places were on fire because of the smoke. You actually wouldn't have been able to see through the city because of the level of smoke. So adding a fire, you almost wouldn't notice it. We often think of those smog as a Victorian thing, but we certainly know it was there in the 18th century as well, masking, in fact, these fires. Um, and as we said earlier on about the, the, the street plans, they spread very, very quickly. Um, previous to the Great Fire of London, actually, uh, nearly a third of London Bridge had actually burnt away previous to the Great Fire anyway. Way, and actually created a fire break which stopped the Great Fire of London travelling across the bridge and to Southwark. So it actually created a fire break in that anyway, and that was from a previous fire, so it's by no means the only one. And some of the lanes that we're going to walk in now, in 1748, for instance, in Exchange Alley, a peruca maker, a peruca manufacturer, that's a person who made wigs, um, caught on fire and destroyed. Um, it destroyed Birchin Lane, Exchange Alley and well into Lombard Street. 80 out of 100 houses were destroyed. And once again, 
people around the area obviously noticed it burnt for 10 hours but people just beyond the confines even maybe on the other side of the Bank of England wouldn't have noticed it because of the actual the fact that the place was so smoky already they may have smelt it oh there's a there's a fire going on somewhere but again um, remember the buildings that burnt down in that particular fire uh, had only been built 80 years previously after the great fire and then a historian writes six years later uh, walking around these alleyways and areas and saying, oh, wonderful, how, how wonderful and commodious these new buildings are. So again, it's, it's the city constantly resurrecting itself. And, and you know, like, again, the, the symbol of the phoenix out of the fire. Um, always um, new buildings, rebuilding, new styles. And again, the city has always, has always been doing that. And I it will continue to do so. And we're about to scoot off into the city in just a second. Uh, I just, before we head out, I want to gauge your respective guiding styles. How do you guide? How do your styles differ from one another? Well, um, Miss Kitty and I both trained in the same year, 2012. That's how we met at the City of London Corporation, the City Guides course. And uh, we are basically, from the very beginning, left to your own devices to do a lot of research on your own. And although we are given lots of tips about health and safety and how to treat the city with a group of people, you are very much left to your own devices to create your own style. And I think... What is interesting, one of the things that drew me to Miss Kitty uh, was that we both have quite strong personalities and we got on very well during the course. And also that, again, we both have um, uh, lively personalities and, and have our, even though I don't have, I'm Miss B, Miss B takes a walk and I dress in the 1940s. That is, I suppose, my sort of school marmish character, whereas Miss Kitty... Yeah, I think I, I would have to say my, my style is probably relaxed. Um, for me, it's about taking someone back in time. Um, I've got an amazing imagination. I think it's probably one of my strong points. And trying to share that with other people is key for me, uh, recreating a world that they could sort of imagine and slip back into. And I feel with history, everyone has a connection to it in some respect. Um, no matter when they came to this country or where they've come from, I think there's a wonderful connection there, and it's about just helping them see that. So for me, my goal I specialise in the 17th and 18th century. I try not to do anything particularly more modern than that as a personal preference. But I love to create that world for people and just help them kind of step back. It's very playful as well. It's a, it's a relaxed kind of imaginary world that I'm making, but a connection to the past that is factual and, and gives people connection to the city that they now call home. Well, one of the joyous things about this sort of area, because it's a built environment, nothing is here by accident. And in fact, any area that you find yourself standing in, like we were talking about the building itself and the various forms it's taken, the lettering over the door, each component has been put in by somebody else at some different point. It's layer upon layer of history. That's correct. I think, um, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about London is, um, as Miss Bee was just saying, it's one of those places that it resurrects itself. Um, I often think that it's sort of built on the ashes of the past. It's one of those things where no matter where you're looking in the city, you'll see little aspects of everything that's been before. And not only that, but things that are going forward into the future, things are being built. It's something that never stays the same. It's hard for us as history lovers to not get terribly attached to bits of history that are still here. And obviously we do work hard to sort of campaign to save places that are in danger. But it is one of those places that is permanently rebuilding and remodelling itself. And it's something that's part of the joy of it, sort of the plus and the minus of it. It's a, it's a balancing act of the two, but it will continue. And long may it. <laughs> 
Well, we're going to continue, but we're going to do so whilst walking. We're going to perambulate, and it's the perfect time of day in my view to see uh, the city at Christmas time. There are one or two uh, Christmas trees up outside the major buildings around Bank Station. Places are garlanded with lights, and we're going to go into the, uh, the gathering dusk. That's correct. We've got a lovely uh, dusk light as well, so the lights are just being lit. Um, got a lovely, nice atmosphere in these wonderful um, courtyards that create a sort of lovely historic flair to them and something that that lovely atmosphere that I, I keep going on about. We're now going to move off um, from Ball Court and go towards the famous Georgian vulture. Now you say famous, and I've certainly heard the name, but I don't know a thing about it at this point. What is it we're in search of? It sounds like a pub. It certainly is. It's a very, very old historic tavern. It's got a great history. We're going through a lovely little uh, alleyway here now. You can hear my echoey voice. Um, it's a great um, uh, location, which has a great history, and an, an interesting connection to the Hellfire Club, which I'm sure many people will have heard of. An infamous club made up of... Uh, politicians and, and characters of note during the uh, 18th century that's uh, a certain element of history and mystery around it well this didn't take us very long we're outside already yeah that's it the joy of this place and these little alleyways is they are so close um for me it recreates this sort of medieval street plan that so much of london has lost around here you've got these lovely alleyways they're almost quite disorientating as well um it's easy for you to lose your place we know them very well and, and the same for us quite often we we end up in the wrong place so it creates that lovely atmosphere and so we stood here outside the Georgian Vulture Tavern city institution it has been a tavern well there's been a tavern on this site since at least the 13th century um, previous to that as well the land was owned by a, an earl so it was it's it's been there's people been here for certainly up until the uh, 12th century this current one was built in the 1740s and it's got a great link to obviously the history of the city of London the Hellfire Club we believe may have been founded here now the key with the Hellfire Club is is the mystery around it which is perhaps why we like it so much a lot of the documents from this club were actually destroyed by the Victorians uh, in the later centuries so we're not actually sure exactly what went on um, but why, from, why did they destroy them well potentially because they were so salacious exactly so full of vice um, the Hellfire Club as the name may suggest it was very much a sort of mockery of religion it was started by uh, Sir Francis Dashwood um, who, yeah, mocked religion. So a lot of the, the club ceremonies that they actually had here, they called them friars, they were brothers, they were brought in, they're sort of group of eminent 18th century sort of politicians, like I say, men of note. Um, and can, we, can we name names? Um, well, there's, a, uh, I think, the Earl of Sandwich, there's potentially some others, John, uh, John, John Wilkes, Wilkes, and um, I think the Prince of Wales also made an appearance there once uh, or now twice. Now I see why the paperwork went missing. Yeah. This <laughs> is the thing, you've got these very important people of note. Now, in the 18th century, going to clubhouses it was very, very popular. Everyone did it. And it was heavily involved with vice and prostitution. These clubs were about uh, bringing attractive, beautiful young women to potentially quite older, rich men and showing them a good time, basically. Um, and a lot of these clubs were about creating these mock ceremonies uh, with virgins, friars, brothers, that kind of thing, um, which is obviously why we can see why it was potentially destroyed by the Victorians. So actually some of the paperwork that we have left are things like receipts, uh, so things where it lists who was in attendance on that particular occasion and what they drank and potentially what they ordered in terms of stocks for the evening, that kind of thing. And we can glean a little bit of information from that and from contemporary accounts, but it's all very, very mysterious. How does that fit in with the period? And I am thinking in particular, having talked about Samuel Pepys 
in a recent podcast of the licentiousness of Charles II's court. Does it does it fit in closely with that? It does. I mean, it, it sort of started with the uh, the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Um, this great sort of resurgence of enjoyment um, of the sensory pleasures, really, and that certainly continued into the 18th century. I think it's key to mention here that visiting brothels and prostitutes, certainly in the 17th and 18th century, was something that every gentleman did, and it was not particularly frowned upon. It's not the way that we look at it today. So when we talk about it in terms of the 18th century with these men of note, you know, booking prostitutes or whatever, it was seen as completely acceptable. Um, the only thing that a, that a wife would, would worry about would be the, the husband bringing the pox home to her. But generally it was accepted and it went on everywhere. And certainly in, in the city there would be taverns uh, with brothels attached to them. There were molly houses, brothels for, for men as well as for women. So there was all sorts available Everywhere you went, sex was for sale. And a big part of that was the clubs. And, uh, of course, we're heading for Birchin Lane, which uh, we believe most probably had nothing to do with birch for any handicrafts, but more for applying to somebody's buttocks, more than likely. So, uh, again, I have to be very careful with my name as Miss B, because a Miss B does appear on the Harris list, which was, of course, by the master pimp, I think it was John Harris, wasn't it? Yeah, so uh, we like to think of Birchin Lane was most probably one of those areas where um, certain gentlemen went for certain entertainments. Did you know that when you started to cultivate your pseudonym? No. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to do a sharp right. We're going to do a hairpin right into Bengal Court, which is not as expansive as the name might suggest. In fact, it's... Uh, it looks a lot like Dead Man's Alley out the back of the old bailey. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. Lovely atmosphere. We can poke here through as well into the Georgian Vulture. You can see this great atmosphere going on there as well. It's a lovely old um, footprint as well, like uh, Miss B was mentioning early on. You've still got all those original footprints. So you've got these funny positions like popping out at you where you can peek into a window. Uh, it just creates a wonderful atmosphere that really takes you back into time as well. So what are we doing in Bengal Court? Uh, we're actually just, um, we brought you here because we felt it was very much... It's very much time. We killed you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I no, noticed no, no, there are no witnesses around there's suddenly. There's no witnesses except for the gentleman imbibing in his port in the Georgian Vulture. Could, could I just uh, jump on that fact, though? We are right in the city of London yes. and it's rush hour and there's no one around. That's it. Well, how come? I believe it's as it's Christmas time, they're most probably imbibing a little longer. And, of course, the Thursday is the new Friday. so uh, Everyone's drunk, right. that's what you're saying. Yeah. I'm not, I wouldn't like to say they're all drunk, but they're generally using, the obviously, the festive season to get together with their clients and their friends and have a jolly good time. But this particular Bengal court we thought was really lovely because, one, it's very quiet when you consider the hubbub of the city just most probably um, about, what, 300 metres away or even less than that. And uh, it's just, again, one of those wonderful courts that you can find and you never remember where it is again. Hmm. Well, not if you're as drunk as everyone seems to be, right? <laughs> um, so I think I can see yeah, something at the end there. Where are we going to emerge when we pop out of Bengal uh, Court? We're going to cross over Birchin Lane. We won't tarry in Birchin Lane. Definitely and we're not. going to go to Exchange Alley, which um, is actually... <laughs> In the light of what you said about Birchin Court, I'm making no assumptions about the name. <laughs> well, Exchange, it's now called Change Alley, but, of course, it was very much connected with the Royal Exchange because what would happen in Change Alley, of course, there were coffee houses there as well as people uh, exchanging money and, and trading with one another. So, hence, they lost the EX and it became Change, but it was originally Exchange Alley. So we'll make our way across... 
No, how, how well you know it? You can't actually see where the alley is. You can't actually see where it is. Uh, because it's not audibly obvious, we just got lost on our tour. How, did. how did you deal with the first few times you got lost when you were, became well, a it's tour still guide? happening, so oh, no. it's something that we have to continually go to deal with. Um, but I think the key is, is that it gives you that lovely impression of actually what it was like to go on these back streets during any of those centuries. They were actually quite scary little back alleys, and that's the thing. Sometimes you can easily lose your way, and suddenly it's all a little bit nervous. And I think what that does is it just takes you straight back and reminds you what those dark alleyways potentially would have been like when there could have been a, a, a footpad or a thief around the corner someone's about to you know jump out at you it creates a lot of that and it just helps to reinvent it for the modern audience that's a very smooth answer thank you very much <laughs> i try we're past the site of the king's arms tavern where the first meeting of the marine society was held in 1756 one blue badge coming my way for that one but uh, when you... No? Was that not enough? <laughs> well done, well done. No, well, we'll done, well done. Re- surely reading off a blue pack I is wouldn't. enough, isn't it? No, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go for the blue badge. I'd stay with, you know, some of the smaller smaller areas like uh, Westminster or the city, the city in particular. Ah, so what does the blue badge mean then? Blue badge is uh, we're actually site-specific guides, which means when we get our badge from the City of London, we are qualified to guide in the city. That means we shouldn't have taken the wrong turn just then. Uh, we're allowed to take wrong turns because I think it makes it interesting. And also, um, I think when you're you're focusing on being recorded as well as thinking of what the next stop oh, might I be, see. My fault. Is, more than, is more than one can manage, you know. But, uh, no, we're, we're coping very well with this. This is great fun. But the Blue Badge Guide is a much longer course. It's over several years. It costs an awful lot of money. There's an awful lot of coach work. They, they are very uh, strongly trained to take very, you know, long coach trips to places like Stonehenge and Bath. And I have to say, I don't really know an awful lot about the actual, but you can find lots about it online. But uh, for me personally, I find the city offers me absolutely everything I could possibly want in terms Mm. of what I want to talk about and where I want to be. And um, we're here as well. I wanted to choose this spot because if you look up, you can see the sign for Garraway's Coffee House. And I know you've done podcasts of coffee houses, so we don't want to go into that into too much detail. But also, this was where the fire started at the Peruca Maker, um, just on the corner. And I like the way this building is constructed because actually the way the windows are, you could almost imagine the auctions taking place during the hubbub of the of the coffee the coffee house as well have i missed a step there auctions which auctions yes well garraways was famous for auctions this Ah. is where the traders and the merchants and the sea captains would come with the goods that they had just brought back from well from the from africa or from the caribbean um even from the far east they obviously wouldn't bring everything but they would bring the coffee bean or the pepper or even a slave and they would basically come here and people would meet to buy the goods that were being that were being brought into the country and there's a famous um the, the way they auctioned was they would have a candle a tallow candle which was marked off in certain areas with a pin and the auction would continue until the pin dropped so it was when you could hear the pin drop the auction was automatically closed by contrast, as we look through those windows now, we see something that very much represents the present century. And I don't think I've even seen one of these before, which is why it's caught my eye. We can see 
ThinkPods. A ThinkPod, yes. A think Isn't that bizarre? Well, because in multiple ThinkPods, and this is your office cubicles designed for the 21st century. It's a wraparound thing. It's got a blue visor at eye height, and these people are sitting at chairs. I've no idea what they're up to, uh, but I wouldn't want to be doing it. his forehead. Yes, he, he does. <laughs> it's a sign of modern life, that's what that is, clutching the forehead. Well, it's like he's probably the only other sober person apart from us. Perhaps, yes. Poor man. First afternoon. All right, where to? Uh, we're off now towards uh, the bank station, uh, bank junction, so we're going to be taking in some of the uh, Georgian powerhouses of the City of London, which are still with us today as well, so... We're going to be going to the Royal Exchange to talk about trade there. Um, and then we're going to be heading on to the, um, the Bank of England and then also the Mansion House and just talk about the real hub that is and was the Bank Junction, still is obviously today. This here, just before we leave Change Alley, there are still very interesting businesses going on in the city and we're standing in front of a building whereby there's a door that looks like a prison cell and it has a very, very handsome uh, brass plaque saying eight members club. And uh, none of us actually know what goes on behind those closed doors. But um, I understand it's um, a private men's club, men only club. Well, now, what do you think is going on behind these doors? I imagine they're having a lot of fun. Really. I want in, really. <laughs> well, are you, are you sure? Do you want to find out what sort of fun they're having first? Yeah. No, I want in. I want in. Look at it. It looks amazing. It's got a little peak hole in the door there. It looks like a proper sort of old speakeasy-style... Mm. Not sure and what's going um, on there. A bit mysterious. Yeah, I like the sound of that. But the really important piece of information here on the tiled wall is the blue plaque, the one that talks about Jonathan's Coffee House, because this uh, built building is actually on the site of Jonathan's Coffee House, which was the famous haunt of the city stockbrokers who were banned from the Royal Exchange because basically they made too much noise. I'm a big fan of all this white, white uh, smooth tiling, tiling yes, going on yes, around I'm, here. I'm assuming that is very much a, a Victorian Victorian affectation or addition and uh, presumably um, it, it was able to be washed down and cleaned off quite, quite easily as well. But uh, we'll now move on into the hubbub of the uh, Royal Exchange and, and the bank area to talk about those wonderful buildings. As the noise increases, this seems like a pretty good time to shove a break up the podcast. Uh, do give our sponsor a listen. It is The Week magazine. And here is some information about them. And if, if you like the podcast, like our sponsor, for goodness sake. The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comment and opinion from the UK and overseas bringing you up to date with everything you need to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news, with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties, and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it. Get your first issue for free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm Anne Quentin Wolf, and with me are Miss Tina B, Miss Kitty Pridden, and we're in the portico of the Royal Exchange. I know a little bit about the Royal Exchange. I know it was completely uh, rethought at one point in its life, wasn't it? It went from being a place of commerce and trade to being a much bigger place of commerce and trade. That's about right, actually. It just grew bigger and bigger and bigger. The first Royal Exchange was the um, invention of Thomas Gresham, the man with the sign of the grasshopper, 
The sign of the grasshopper was the sign of the Gresham family. It's a giant one that sits atop the Royal Exchange. There's a grasshopper up there. A giant, yep, bronze, I'm presuming, grasshopper, just sitting up there, massive. And you actually notice a few of them dotted around the City of London. There was one just by the sign we saw as well a couple of minutes ago. At Garraway's. So there are a few of them dotted around, and it it links with the the Gresham family. Uh, It appears on his crest, so it is his... This is Mark, I suppose, his familiar. He was, uh, he was a goldsmith, and if we had gone, come out at Lombard Street, you would have seen an even larger grasshopper hang, uh, sign hanging over the street where his family home and the business of goldsmithing was going on. And, of course, the goldsmiths not only worked in gold, but they were also acted as bankers. Um, and uh, he had this idea. He was the financier, or should I say the financial advisor to Elizabeth I, he had this great idea from the Bourse in Antwerp. They already had a meeting place for merchants and traders to do their business. He asked the Queen if she would fund it. She declined, so he built it out of his own money. She was processing, as one does as a monarch, up Cheapside one day and said, what is that fine building? And he said, that is my exchange. And she said, well, from now on, you can call it the Royal Exchange because I find it to be a rather splendid building. And, of course, as time went on, um, it was destroyed in the Great Fire. It was rebuilt again by William Tite in the 1880s. But, of course, in between that time, the Georgians made good use of it as well. And by then, um, it was also uh, had shops on the outside. It had offices and businesses on the inside, very much as it appears today. It was like a Tower of Babel. I mean... I don't think we could fully understand just how many nationalities might be here at any given time. You know, from Shanghai to Muscovy, there were particular walks in inverted commas where a man walking into the Royal Exchange would know exactly where to find the Jewish merchants, where they would find the the Dutch merchants, where they would find uh, the Japanese. So it was very, very... It was truly cosmopolitan. And is that because, as as today, I guess, to some degree, you'd look to different parts of the globe for different specialisms? Well, I think also, of course, what was happening with the East India Company, the um, Africa Company, all those incredible trading companies, the world had been, you know, like, I would imagine, split open, if you like, and everybody wanted a part of it. But... The City of London, I think from, well, certainly since it was, let's say, truly established by Alfred the Great in AD 886, it had begun to get a reputation of the place to be to to make trade. This is where you would find your ships. This is where you'd find your funding. This is also most probably where you'd find, if you like, your, your early insurance as well. Okay, so I had a bit of an idea. I was trying to think of a modern-day analogue, and I was, I was reaching for sort of an Amazon or an eBay, but this is much more comprehensive than that. I would agree with that. And also what you've got to understand is those famous coffee houses. Well, when we think about these merchants, surely every, every time they sent out a ship, or in fact several ships, loaded with whether it would be it was wool, um, um, grain, going out to trade... They were taking huge risks. I mean, you know, not only were people making vast fortunes, there were people on a daily basis losing vast fortunes as well. And, um, you know, the city has extraordinary... I don't know, can we say schutzpah? I mean, it just... It never seems to give up. You, you know, you lose one lot, 
you go and you know you get another group of people together to support you obviously somebody who was losing constantly is not going to get a lot of support from the businessmen you'd have to find other ways of you know i mean there's endless stories of you know thomas the greshams were particularly lucky he was a financier to the queen his family continued to flourish but also what you have here is the goldsmiths were original the original bankers and then of course we have here today to our right we have the bank of england which was um, created in i think around 1698 as a private as, institution as a private institution but really to raise money for the monarch so that he could fight the french but and there was always a little bit of a a bit of a you know the, the, the goldsmiths and the bankers were not initially happy at first about the fact that they were you know they they were really in competition at that time and certainly in the 17th century but the goldsmiths families actually became the biggest bankers like childs and and coots i think that's a key point with the uh, the the livery companies in the city of london um is the 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 power actually that they had uh, for commerce that they still have today um thomas gresham is a classic example of that he was an eminent member of the uh, the goldsmiths livery company um he would have undoubtedly had support from other members of the livery company because this place would have created trade for them so they wanted in it created these wonderful almost like cooperatives actually um and and these livery companies were able to do that for people of of their livery company you know of uh, you know other goldsmiths that knew that they could actually benefit from having a royal exchange here and it makes so much sense that you here uh, it makes so much sense that the big insurance houses are right on the doorstep and indeed named after the streets around us it's a one stop shop for somebody who's aiming to go around the world and get rich that's it it really feels like um, the bank junction here is it's almost like it's a sort of powerhouse um, for the empire certainly the 17th 18th and potentially 19th centuries um, because everything from here is is about trade and it's about um, as miss bisa it's about reaching out all across the globe and bringing everything right back into this point you've actually done it you know you've you've given me the shivers i feel like i am at the center of the world that's it and that it still feels like that today we can look out from this portico here we're underneath this amazing powerhouse just looking up you get this amazing sense of space of grandeur of 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 commerce of of, of amazing um, commercialism and then looking out beyond us we've got mansion house the home for the lord mayor of london of the city of london um you know the the, the chief the kingpin of the city of london uh, annually and obviously on our right hand side we've got the uh, the bank of england the financial powerhouse that drove the empire itself. So right in this space here, we've got everything that really birthed that empire. And the great thing about this is it actually goes back way further. This goes back this is a major Roman junction and it still is today. It's still a huge junction. You've got loads of tube lines cross- crossing just below our feet here as well. Um, and I think that's the thing. It still reaches it speaks to you because it's still doing what it always did. As you've been talking, I've been conscious that we've built up to such a crescendo, I have no idea how we pull back from that and carry on with the podcast. Well, we could diffuse that crescendo by um, the fact that uh, just another sort of interesting idea of where the city found itself, maybe in around the 1720s, for instance, because what, uh, as Miss Kitty has said, 
that a lot of people were moving out to the west to these rather handsome squares and and rather wonderful colonnaded townhouses that were being created. And there was a huge outcry in the city in 1722 when, God forbid, um, Westminster wanted to have a bridge all of its own. There was a huge furore. The corporation was up in arms, Southwark was up in arms, the boatmen, the wherrymen, the ferrymen, the horse ferrymen were up in arms, and of course it was squashed. So, phew, what a relief. We've still got the one and only crossing into the city of London, so everybody had to come this way. But what it did make them think about was that the city was maybe looking slightly tawdry, slightly sad, so it needed to spruce itself up a bit. So this was the time of, again, the rebuilding or refurbishment of, well, rebuilding um, public buildings and commercial buildings. They built... Customs House, which is on the river. The East India Company built a new HQ. We got um, Sir John Soane's uh, Bank of England, which we still see the curtain wall today. And also the Royal Exchange. And, of course, the Mansion House, because the Mansion House was the last piece in this wonderful heart of financial and, and what was it, the greatest city in the empire. Because that spot used to be a market, and it was known as the common nuisance. It was a stocks market. It, it was called Stocks Market. It had been there for 450 years. It was still there in 1722. And the mayor had nowhere to live. So what happened was the fleet, interestingly enough, at the same time was being culverted, covered over. Farringdon Road was being created. And they created a market there. So therefore they didn't need the stocks market. So they pulled it down. I mean, it was, a, it was a stone building, pulled it down, and George Dance, the elder, won the competition to build this astounding uh, new uh, building for the palace, the palace for the city of London, where the Lord Mayor would live. And the first Lord Mayor who moved in 30 years after the agreement to build the mansion house, it took a while, was Sir Crisp Gascoigne. And you just couldn't make a name up like that. So, Chris Gascoigne. You know what we haven't mentioned at all this podcast is Christmas. Christmas. Let's get a Georgian Christmas going on. It is. We've got a lovely Christmas tree in front of us here outside the Royal Exchange. Um, The Georgian Christmas, it's very different to the Christmas we have today. As most people are aware, um, most of our Christmas traditions are Victorian. um, And certainly most of what we have on Christmas Day, you know, the Christmas lunch, all of that is Victorian. Oh, yes, um, we didn't used to have a, a turkey, did we? No, In fact, that's a very not. recent. It's very recent. Uh, and it's something we're doing at the Georgian Dining Academy is we're not having a turkey for our Christmas celebration. We're doing anything but a turkey. Well, what, what did uh, people feast on on Christmas Day? Did they have a, a major meal then? It would be things like goose and duck and lots and lots of meat, uh, but also sweet meats, jellies, those kind of things, really enjoyable, but a lot of sort of gelatin-based uh, um, kind of things. Uh, uh, there would have been a pudding, like a fruit pudding, because but then a fruit pudding was quite common. And um, we were recently just done um, um, an event at the Cartoon Museum and Gilray's cartoon about the, oh, the, let's, the let's save the plum pudding and you've got Pitt and you've got Napoleon chopping it up. So the, the plum pudding would have been already created and most probably would have definitely been eaten in winter because of the fact it was made from dried fruits and it would have been easy to construct 
at that time of year? I think the key sort of celebration for December was Advent. Uh, There was a lot of uh, celebrating between families and friends during the whole of December, but it wouldn't focus on Christmas Day or around that period. It would be throughout Advent itself. Um, And also something that's generally uh, given to Prince um, Albert, obviously a... Queen Victoria's uh, husband, that he brought the Christmas tree to to England. It's actually not the case. Uh, Queen Charlotte, the wife of George III, brought the first uh, Christmas trees to this country. There's a lovely account of one that she had at Windsor Castle. It was a a large yew tree there, and it would be hung with decorations, sweetmeats, some toys for the children, Uh, and she invited the whole family or their friends there as well and held this wonderful Christmas celebration. But that wasn't on Christmas Day itself. It was earlier in December. Uh, Was Charlotte... uh, Germanic, German? She was, as with many, all our Georgian <laughs> kings, technically, come from uh, from Germany or Hanover. But obviously George III was born here, so he was very much considered himself British, definitely. Dual passport. Exactly. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, and his wife obviously was integral to bringing those lovely sort of European traditions to this country with the tree. Uh, but it was certainly not popular up until Albert when he sort of brought it back and it started to people started to want to emulate the royal family Victoria and Albert creating that perfect household, you know, the perfect mother and father, the children, that kind of thing people wanted to sort of emulate that So is it, this is a bit of an aside really given the subject but I'm, I just want to glue things together in that satisfying way and George I generally speaking was pretty unpopular because he didn't speak the, the tongue That's of the right. land and then I guess George III managed to lose America so I'm guessing that the, the Georges weren't very popular Am I right in thinking that uh, who do we have? George the Fourth, William, and then yes, and then uh, Victoria. So was Victoria like the Wills and Kate of the time? Was she and Albert kind I of cool monarchy? Yeah, I think they were actually. Um, as I say, Victorians are not my uh, area of expertise, but certainly I think there's that well-known um, sort of belief that actually they did create that sort of uh, the modern family, you know, the, the husband staying home, not going out to the whorehouses that he would have done in the 18th century. So it was about that shifting to, um, you know, the importance of family. And Victoria went on about that for a large proportion of her reign and, and creating that, I think, of what we call as a sort of modern family that we have today. But, I mean, the Georgian period covered, well... With by mass, just well over a hundred years. So there were that many. There were four four Georges, That's it. and I think George the Third actually, even for all his madness, I think he was the one that was mad. Yes. Um, actually reigned a long time. But I feel personally, now that I'm getting to know Georgians a little bit more intimately, should I say, is that they certainly knew how to have a jolly good time. I mean. You know, there is obviously a very dark side and an underbelly to Georgian life as well. But in terms of what they like to eat, the way they like to dress, the way they decorated their homes, their tables, we enjoy particularly decorating our event in, in, you know, golden pineapples, a sign of hospitality, uh, lots of interesting jellies, um, certainly punch, a very, very special punch. They like to imbibe in, in, you know, delicious delicious um, concoctions but um, they were an awful lot of fun and even if they maybe did celebrate Christmas throughout the whole of Advent um, I do feel that the coming of Vic- the Victorians did actually put a bit of a, a cap on the general, the general frivol- frivolity and fun of the whole of what, what had been the Georgian period can, can I just get a handle, and maybe it's the wrong end of the podcast to get an overview, but uh, you're conscious of the two big peaks in empire, the Elizabethan and the Victorian, and obviously the Georgian period is kind of strung between them like a hammock. But what we've been talking about seems quite triumphant and ex- extraordinarily successful. 
Does that represent the time as a whole? Uh, because on the other hand, I'm thinking of things like uh, bubbles and economic crises and over-borrowing and all of that stuff. How great a time was it? I think for most of the Georgian period, I think for me... I think it was about an enlightenment. I think suddenly um, there was a lot less uh, sort of religious oppression. People were able to think much more. Um, a lot of ideas were coming over from Europe, um, and we were just beginning to look beyond. You know, we were starting to look up to the sky. We were starting to understand the, the heavens and that kind of thing. So it created this almost like a void for people to start asking questions and pushing boundaries and what that does is it sort of forces I think us to sort of evolve actually in a way because we're questioning ourselves and and what we're getting out of life and I think for me that is the crux of the Georgian period is that it's about an enlightenment in the way that we think about things in the way that we were approaching life Um, and I think in reference to the enjoyment of the period I think it was it was short. It, life could be very short and very hard in the 18th and certainly earlier centuries. And I think that, that gave people a, a reminder and a jolt to enjoy life. And that, yeah, you know, you could go out and get drunk all day and, you know, you could have a great time and you could go and meet Molly from around the corner and whatever. It was, a, it was all about just enjoying the sensory side of things um, and perhaps maybe just veering away a little bit from the church and a little bit from God and actually enjoying more of potentially those earthly pleasures. And you, you talk about, yes, uh, you know, we, we managed to, America managed to leave us. It was no longer a colony. But also at home, there were very interesting things happening, and particularly from the city's point of view, is the fact that um, this, the city of London has this extraordinary autonomy. I mean, it just, it rules itself, if you like. Um, and it did go up against King George, particularly... Um, we haven't got time to go in it, into it today, but we really should mention John Wilkes and the way he was treated by the monarchy and the fact that the city stood up and actually went to the king and, and came behind him to basically support him. And he, in fact, was made an alderman of Farringdon Without while he was still in prison. I have to say John Wilkes is, is not my particular forte, but he, let's put it this way, he crossed the king um, in terms of he was actually winning a lot of votes for a particular area and the king had taken a dislike to John Wilkes and his outspokenness, especially against the king and the monarchy, uh, sorry, against the monarchy, and basically they um, fiddled the vote. And when he went up against the king, he was imprisoned. And he did win the vote fair and square, but the, the king basically made it, no, that is not correct, he's going to go to prison. So there was a huge rise, certainly within the city, by uh, William Beckford, who was the mayor at the time and who was a friend of John Wilkes, to go up to the king. And basically it's called the famous remonstrance where he went to the king and actually argued with him, which was something that you should never, ever do. It was considered the height of bad manners. But again, the story of Beckford, he didn't come from England. He was a Jamaican, the son of a Jamaican plantation owner and was doing very nicely in the city, thank you. But basically, they, they very quietly threatened the king that there may yet be another glorious revolution if he didn't basically mend his ways and eventually John Wilkes was freed and um, uh, Mr Beckford, Lord Mayor Beckford was um, made mayor again but sadly the efforts of supporting John Wilkes virtually killed him but he's the, um, Beckford is the only Lord Mayor who actually has a, a statue to him, a memorial to him in the Guildhall where you can read the remonstrance but I just wanted to mention this because 
although we might, you know, there's life is short, but also democracy. Democracy was coming through. There were riots. There were people standing up for their rights. So it was an extraordinary time. I mean, it's just a huge, it's just a huge subject, the Georgians. Well, I feel some reassurance, I guess, that you, you couldn't have a situation today where somebody got a huge uh, groundswell of popular support and was anti-monarchist and then got hounded out of office by uh, an inflexible establishment. That could never happen. But let's go back to sensory pleasures, though. We need to start coming to a close. And there are sensory pleasures on the horizon in delicious form. There certainly are. Georgian Dining Academy next week, yes. We've got our lovely uh, December Christmas celebration. As we said earlier on, not a turkey in sight. And as usual, we're going to do our wonderful punch. So we're going to get everyone very merry and just have a really, really great good time. What's in the punch? It's a bit of a secret recipe. But it's addictive, put it that way. Uh, and <laughs> is it, infamous. Is it legal? Yes, it is. Uh, put it this way, it takes a couple of, mu- a couple of months to get what, ready. What, to wear off? No, no, to, 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 to prepare. It's sort of, I put things in it and it, it, it mulls away for a while and it's a bit of a secret, but it's a popular one. Run a mile, listener. <laughs> yes, we've got, uh, we've got a fantastic menu. It's on the 10th of December. We've still got a few seats available. You can contact us uh, via Facebook if you're interested. I'm afraid we don't have a website. We're a little bit old-fashioned like that. We have a wonderful chef at Simpsons Tavern who we work very closely with to make it um, as near as possible as we can uh, to what would be a Georgian menu. And we have lots of wine. We have beautiful Stilton round and some delicious port. And while all of that is going on, Miss Kitty and I... Uh, talk to you for very little short segments throughout the evening telling you interesting historical pieces about the Georgian period and we also have a, a, a special guest this time we've got Dr Matthew Green who is of course going to talk about coffee and coffee houses we've got uh, we've got lamb shank um, we've got the duck with uh, gooseberry, gooseberry sauce. We have a vegetarian hot pot because we must cater for the vegetarians. For starters, we've got a wonderful uh, crispy pork and black pudding. We have um, a soup, if I remember rightly, it's a parsnip and horseradish. Parsnip and horseradish. I'm actually creaking with hunger. And the puddings, we've created this wonderful boozy berry jelly, which will be made with cranberries this time. We're going to also have... It's a chock and coffee pot, so inspired by our coffee talks. It's going to be delicious. can't do any more of this. No. What more could you want? Uh, Well, listen, you've you've heard what's on the menu. Uh, You've heard the sort of companions you're likely to be enjoying. What's not to like? We have to get out of here, not least because I have to go and shove a meal into my face immediately. Miss Kitty Britton, Miss Tina B, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all for this week. Thanks for this week to Tina B and Kitty Britton. Sorry, Miss Kitty Britton. (laughs) I'm not going to get away with that. Miss Kitty Britton and Miss Britton. I've been told. Uh, Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe.
front door. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.